0: Romans chapter 12 and tonight we'll look at our, our, a view of ourselves but not only ourselves uh, but ourselves in relationship to others. We want to pick up with a thought from our last study about having a proper perspective about ourselves. Our view of ourselves and other Christians, I believe, is critical for we're going to be what God wants us to be and accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish. And Actually, it's God accomplishing things through us, not we accomplishing them. It's our failure in our attitudes about ourselves many times and even um, about others that robs us of our effectiveness and our influence for Christ and keeps us from growing and maturing in the Lord. In chapter 12, Paul addresses the issue of our view of ourselves and other believers. Is one Christian more important than another? You know, if a person can preach, does that make him more important than in someone who serves quietly behind the scenes? Does God want to use me? Does God want to use you? Can he use me? Can he use you? How will he use us? What does he want us to do? Paul begins to address these questions here in Romans chapter 12, and, and then he answers them. Of course in chapter or, or verse one and two, he talks about us being a sacrifice, be separated in our thinking and our lifestyle, be sensible, sober-minded when it comes to our attitudes about ourselves. And so the first thing I want to look at is the attitude of unity. Again, reading verse three, it says, For I say, through the grace given Unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Paul's message is for all of us. He says, to every man among you, and man uh, is a generic term there, referring to every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. In other words, we're not to be high-minded or proudly think of ourselves. There are two attitudes that hinder Christians in spiritual growth and effectiveness, and he gives the first one here. The first one is a proud attitude. Overestimating our worth will lead to embarrassment. An inflated view of ourselves is out of place in the Christian life. With The look at me, hey, look at me, I'm the greatest. I'm number one. That kind of attitude just doesn't cut it very well in Christianity. I know that uh, there are Christians that have that attitude. There are even some preachers that have that attitude. When you evaluate yourself by this world's standard of success, it will cause you to focus too much on your worth, in the eyes of others, and you'll miss your true value in God's eyes. We're to be concerned about God's opinion of ourselves, not our popularity with society or those around us. A person can be successful in the crowd's viewpoint, but it can be a flop in God's eyes. So a proud attitude ends up deceiving us Remember in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And so a pompous, proud attitude is wrong because our abilities, our gifts, are from the Lord. All that we are, all that we have is because of Him. John 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. The second attitude is a false humility. This is the kind of the other end of the scene here. It says, it's a person who says, I can't do anything. I'm no good. I'm a failure. You know, that attitude is still wrong as well. Some might think, well, that's humility. You know, they're just being humble. No, that's a false humility. It's an excuse. It's a crutch for laziness. It's a way of seeking sympathy. It's a way of seeking attention or praise from other people. You know, oh, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. You know, yeah, you're you're able to do that, you know, and they're looking for praise. Paul did not have this attitude. He knew what he was. Where he had been, where he was going, he knew who got the credit for everything. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, "...with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus." He goes on to say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit this, for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to have ever, life everlasting. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He knew who he was. He knew where he had been. And he knew where he was going. I understand that President Ronald Reagan had a little sign on his desk that read, There's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. You see, God wants us to have a genuine attitude of humility in our lives. Here in verse 2, Paul called for a transformation by the renewing of your mind. Now in verse three, he tells us how to think about oneself. You know, we hear a lot about self-esteem in our day and age. That's kind of a byword in today's culture. It's a popular folk religion says we need to think more highly of ourselves. You need to, you need to think yourself to be really something. You know, that's the way you get ahead is, you know, if you, you believe in yourself. It's called uh, the me generation. Of course, we talked about, I think last week in one of our messages about the cult of self. Everybody's concerned about themselves. I mean, you just have to, you look at the magazines. Uh, I hope you don't even bother buying a lot of those magazines, but even Life magazine is all about People and, and, you know, uh, me. There's a, a People magazine. There's a, a magazine entitled Self. There's a magazine entitled Us. You see, it's all about, you know, what we can uh, show to the world. Paul doesn't caution us about having too low of self esteem, he warns us of having an inflated ego. He warns about thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And the truth is that people with low self esteem are still focused upon themselves. You realize that? If you have low self esteem, you're still thinking about yourself. Now, who's the most important person in the church? This is a trick question. Who's the most important person in our church? As soon as you think of a name, it's wrong. What's the most important part of your body? If you're going to cut one part of your body off, and I know maybe some of you have got a, a finger missing or something or a toe cut off or something in, a, in an accident or, a, or something, but what is the most important part of your body? If you're going to cut something off, then I'm going to tell you all the members of your body are going to be hurting for that one member. All the members of my body are important. When one part of my body hurts, my whole body hurts. Notice to whom this uh, Paul addresses himself. He speaks again to everyone among you. There's not one of us here tonight that's not included in this passage. To every man that is among you. And his lessons for self-esteem are for all members of the church everyone from the pastor to the pew warmer so we find here the attitude of unity secondly <clears throat> unity and diversity verse 4 and 5 for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another now, I don't particularly like this term diversity, but it's pretty much the best term that I could use here because the diversity reminds me of some of the diversity training sessions I've sat through. Uh, and you, if, you're, if you work out in the world and you have a, a work for a company that has uh, training sessions and so forth, they always have these diversity training sessions. It's trying to make you more uh, sensitive to other people and to other cultures and so forth. And it's full of worldly humanistic philosophy. But we, you know, the truth is, we are a diverse people. Now we're not probably as diverse in this congregation as some congregations are. Um, churches are made up of a variety of people. But you know, we have people here from Spooner. Uh, we have people here from uh, Cumberland. We have people here from Minong. We have people that were raised in Wisconsin. We have people that were raised in Minnesota. We have people that were raised in Kansas. Well, where in the world is that? And, you know, that's really diverse. You know, we have maybe people that are were raised in other states and other maybe even other countries. We are a diverse people. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we have one great thing in common that is our salvation. We're all saved by the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when a person becomes a Christian, they enter a new relationship with God and his people and as the parts of the body have different functions under the direction of the brain. Christians are often... Uh, called to work together under the command and authority of the Lord. But what is our relationship one to another? And I think the Bible makes it clear that we belong to each other. Each Christian functions to serve the church body, not the body to serve the believer. Some people have the idea that the church is to serve them. But no, each person is to serve the church body. Growth comes in giving yourself to the Lord and serving others, not by taking from them. So what are our responsibilities toward others? We'll look at that in a bit. Paul is addressing the church at Rome, and he's addressing a particular church. Some say that there may have been more than one church in that city. I don't know. But Paul talks to this church, he refers to the body of Christ in that location. Again, he says in verse 3, every man that is among you. He's not talking about over in Ephesus. He's not talking to those over in Galatia. He's not talking to, you know, he's talking to those people in Rome. Now, we could say he's talking to us tonight too, because God gave this, not only for the the Christians in Rome, but he gave this for Christians uh, in Spooner as well. It applies to Christians in every Bible-believing, Bible-practicing church in the world. And I believe we must apply it to our church and to our fellow Christians here. Now, the human body is made up of a number of different members. We know that. There are hands and feet and arms and legs Eyes and ears, and we could just go on and on with the list. They're differing members and they have different functions. The eyes and the ears are not interchangeable. When you try to do the right thing with the wrong member, it just doesn't work. My ears can't see very well, my eyes are completely deaf. My feet cannot catch a ball or play the piano. I, maybe somebody can play the piano with their feet, but I can't do it. Can't type on my computer with a keyboard. Now I know some people have learned to do that when they had one of their uh, their hands are uh, been cut off, or they they weren't born with uh, arms and so forth. They learned how to to do that. They adapted with that. But my hands are woefully lacking as means of locomotion. Means I can't get very far if I try to walk on my hands. I have a hard time walking anyway. My body only operates efficiently when each member is doing that which it has been designed to do. And the body of Christ is like that as well. We get into trouble when we treat all Christians as the same. When we try to manufacture disciples in a cookie cutter uh, type or mold, we find it really doesn't work. And the point is that Paul uh, is making here that even though we're all different, we're still one body. We're connected in an organic unit. We're members, one of another. And when one part of the body works properly, then the entire body profits. And when one body, part of the body hurts, the entire body says, ouch. Now we live in an age of independence. We even call ourselves independent Baptists. But the idea of being dependent upon anyone is usually viewed as negative. We talk about being delivered from this co-dependency. But you know what? Christianity really involves interdependency. Interdependency. And in the same way that a body is dependent upon the proper function of all of its members, so the various members of the body of Christ depend upon one another for their spiritual well-being. And this is certainly illustrated in the function of the spiritual gifts. So we have unity and diversity, but we also have diversity and unity. Look at verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now, in verses 4 through 5, we had a focus on the fact of oneness, and we share that we share despite of our differences. Now the focus shifts to the differences which we enjoy in the midst of our unity. There are seven gifts mentioned here. More uh, could have been mentioned. But seven kind of give us a representation of the gifts. They do not seem to be given in a specific order. These gifts are not particularly explained or defined. But each of these gifts, Paul does attach an instruction. For instance, the one that is to minister and teach is to encourage to wait. For their opportunity. Those who rule or exercise leadership. Do it with diligence. And the overall point of this section. Is that each individual member of the body. Is responsible for the gift. And the role that God has given them. Now while the parts may not perform the same task. Each part is responsible for its given task. Each body or each believer is defined Uh, divinely equipped, divinely enlisted for a particular service within the body. Paul's exhortation is that each member does their job as God has called them. We all are different, and we all have different gifts, and we are to excel in in the use of them for the benefit of of the entire body. Now, before we look at these more closely, I want you to first notice there are some wrong attitudes about The gifts. Number one, do not use ability boastfully. We're not to bring glory to ourselves. We're not in competition with one another. I'm going to do more work than you are. No, we're just going to work together. We're not in competition. When we start competing in the church, then we begin to cause some problems. And we become prideful and boastful. And we're not to use our ability boastfully. Secondly, do not belittle yourself. We're not to use our gift with false humility. Thank the Lord for His gifts. Give the glory for what He is doing to Him. Again, I think oftentimes people belittle themselves and they fail to use the gift that God has given to them. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not very good at that. And yet God has given them an ability. We're not always talking about, you know, doing something the more skillfully than other people. Again, that becomes a boastful thing. Do not have blown up confidence. In other words, claiming the impressive gifts that we do not possess. Maybe there are some gifts that are more impressive and we don't have them. So don't covet the gifts that someone else may have. Do not have bitterness. Often we fail to use the gifts because of jealousy or resentment. And do not have bulldog resistance. Some fail to use their gift at all. without uh, Whether out of neglect or indifference or anger or shame. But we'll look at these gifts given in this passage and see some of these gifts are manifested in the realm of speaking. Others are evidence in their service. But Paul doesn't hold one over the other. He's not playing king of the gifts. They're all gifts from God. And they equally have a part in the body of Christ. Now, Now notice the first thing about these gifts, they're a representative nature. They have a representative nature. If you look at the list of gifts here uh, given in this particular passage, you compare it with the list in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you find some differences there. There are gifts mentioned here that are absent from that passage, and there are gifts mentioned there that are not found here. I don't think either list is complete. It tells me that something about listing of gifts as we find them in the Bible, none of the biblical listings of gifts are meant to be an exhaustive list. They're all meant to be samples of the many diverse spiritual gifts. Not every church will have every gift, but every believer does have a gift, I believe. And then secondly, notice the sovereign nature of the gifts. These spiritual gifts are not a shopping list. Well, let's see, which one do I want? They're not a shopping list, and we don't seek to gain that gift. If God, it's God who determines which gifts are given. He gives to us not only the gift, but also the faith by which they are to be exercised. Again, when we belittle the gift, We've been given, we quibble, and we question the sovereignty or the sovereign will of God, which determined the gift given to us along with the place of ministry in which he's placed us. Notice the gracious nature of the gifts. He says in verse 6, having then, what's the word? Gifts. What is a gift? it's not something, you don't earn a gift. It's not something for which you work in order to obtain. It's freely given to you by God. It comes by grace. Indeed, the word for gift and grace are actually related in the Greek language. They come from the same root word. This means that you ought never to become proud or arrogant Over any gift that you might have. It's not a reflection of how spiritual you are, it's a reflection of the grace of God. And then there's the exhortation to persevere in the use of these gifts. Paul calls us to be diligent in utilizing the various gifts which God has given to the church. And this brings us to a problem. Why would the teacher need to be exhorted to teach and the server exhorted to, uh, to serve? Should that not be their natural tendency? Well, not necessarily. Because our natural tendency is what? It's to be self-centered. It's to be self-serving. That's what we naturally do. And so sometimes the teacher needs to be exhorted to teach and the server needs to be exhorted to serve. But this is not how we are to use the gifts, that is, self-centered and self-serving, our service to God is to be self-sacrificing. It's not equal success in the eyes of the world. The world doesn't understand this. You know, the world doesn't understand a lot of things about us. You just try to go to a world, worldly counselor, And you start talking about God and the Bible, and they think, well, you're weird. you got a problem. And then they try to figure out your problem, and they try to fix it. They can't do it. When our service does not appear to be successful, and when our ministry is not self-serving, our tendency is to quit, to resign. You know, like Jonah, uh, we wait for the flash and the fire, and when it doesn't come, we pick up our gourd and we quit. So Paul exhorts us to persevere, to keep on, to stick with what God has given us to do. By the way, young people, first of all, the question is, are you saved tonight? Then if you are saved, then God has given you a gift. God has given you abilities and he's given you talents and you don't have to wait till you're an adult to use them. All right, You can use them as a young person. These gifts are not given to us in order that we might focus upon the gifts. They're given to us that we might focus on the giver of the gifts and they're given that we might focus upon Christ. Now, some of you really got nervous when you saw that list there. You said, "Boy, he's going to take all night to get through that." Let me close. I'm just going to use one of one of the the uh, biblical writers finally, you know, and then go on for two chapters. But as we close this evening, I want you to notice responsibility in unity. We well, have already mentioned we have a responsibility as a believers to the body of Christ where God has placed us. And the Bible gives us a list of these responsibilities, and we need to be diligent in carrying out these responsibilities. I know, it looks like a long list, but we're not spending 15, 20 minutes on each one, okay? Promise. So, you ready? I'll give them to you several at a time. First of all, we're to choose one another. We're to choose one another. In Romans 12, and verse 10, it says, Be kindly affectionate to, to uh, affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. We're to choose one another. We're to prefer others. We're to choose one another. Secondly, we are to be confederate with one another. Now, well, that's a strange word to be using today, isn't it? Do you know what the word confederate means? It means united with others. It means an ally. Romans 12, we'll get down to verse 16 uh, in another message, but it says, there be of the same mind toward one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. We're to choose one another. We're to be to be confederate with one another. Thirdly, we're to cherish one another. John thirteen thirty four and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know, that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. We're to cherish one another. Sometimes it kind of takes... A, Being away from our church family to really appreciate them. Sometimes you go on a trip or you're gone for an extended time and you're away from the church family and and you realize, I kind of miss them. You're glad to be back and we're glad to have you back. But we are to cherish one another. Fourthly, we're to counsel one another. Romans 14, 19 says, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. We also are to be helpful to one another. Now, sometimes people don't like advice from other people. But you know, as we go to a brother or sister in, uh, in love and concern, we are... Not only to counsel one another, we're to be helpful and receive counsel. Number five, we're to care for one another. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-five: that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. We're to carry the burdens. Now, we've talked about this in our Sunday school class in Galatians chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 2, Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The word bear there means to get involved. Take up that, that burden. We're not to com- condemn one another. James 4, 7, or 11, speak not uh, Speak not evil. One of another, brethren, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. Speak not evil one of another. Don't condemn each other. And then number eight, we're to be compassionate with one another. Ephesians 4 Ephesians four thirty two and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Number nine. We're to cancel the faults of others. Now the word cancel there is an accounting term. You know you eliminate. It's an accounting term. You offset the faults of others. Now you don't you don't just say well. They have faults, and that's okay, you know. In a sense, you know, we all have faults, right? I have faults. You have faults. But we kind of forbear one another, as it says in Colossians three thirteen, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave ye, so also do ye. And so in that sense, we're forbearing one another. We're offsetting their faults, the faults of one another, as we forgive one another. And then we're to comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Now what were those words? Well, those words were about Jesus coming for us. One of the greatest comforts is in the world in which we live today is that Jesus is coming back and we're going to be taken up with him and we're to comfort one another that's probably there's many other places where this is taught too, but we need to be in touch with other believers, love them and encourage them. Number eleven, we're to confess our faults to one to another. in James five and verse sixteen, confess. Your faults one to another, and pray for one uh, for an, one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I believe again that confessing sin, confess public sins publicly and private sins privately. For example, if someone speaks up within the hearing of others in the church, maybe at a meeting or in a conversation. They use hateful words and divisive words. I believe that needs to be confessed publicly. Before the church. On the other hand, if in a private conversation, you tell some some uh, someone in a hateful way uh, something and you hurt them, you don't have to get up in front of the church and say, well, folks, I hurt my brother here. If nobody else knows about it. You just go to that person and you confess it to him. Now, if he says, I don't want to hear it, well, then maybe you have to take one or two others and go with it. That's when Matthew 18, I think, comes into play. But we are to confess our faults one to another. And number 12, we're to call upon the Lord for one another. Again, in that same verse in James 5:16, confess your faults one to another and do what? Pray one for another. Effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then number 13, we're to consider one another. Hebrews 10 and verse 24, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The word consider there means to observe, to watch out for one another. You know, Sometimes I think we say, well, so and so, they got themselves in trouble. That's their problem. I'm not going to worry about them. We're to consider one another, to watch out for one another, and uh, uh, to be an encouragement to them. That that didn't hurt too bad, did it? We got through those 13 pretty quick. But I think if you put them all together, you begin to meditate and think about them, you realize we have a responsibility to do these things if we're going to be unified in the Lord. We start... uh, breaking down in any one of these areas, then there's going to be some conflict and there's not going to be any unity. But I think Paul is telling us here that we have gifts and we have abilities and they're not for our glory. They're not for uh, uh, the glory of this church. They're for the glory of God. And as we work together, as we minister together, as we do the work that God's called us to do in the, this body of Christ, in this location, then we will honor and glorify the Lord. So let's stop there and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you.